people. It's about doing whatever needs to happen, whether the photo is sharp or soft or, or deep depth of field or shallow, that you capture something of that person in that image that feels like you that you met on the day. And maybe even more than that, that pushed through all the armor that you could feel they had up as well to get through to who they really were. And that I think is a, maybe spiritual is the wrong word, but it's an anthropological exercise. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we're diving deep. Today we're going to get into not only magnificent photography and intriguing filmmaking, but into philosophy and spirituality. We're talking with Sean Tucker. Sean is well known throughout the world for his videos on YouTube and elsewhere, and his images, frankly, are breathtaking. So, Sean, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me, Scott. It, it is my pleasure. You know, I'm really looking forward today because so much of the work we do is well beyond the technical aspects of, of photography. And, and so often we look out our window or our door, we're going out to shoot, and we think, what in the world am I doing? What, what is it that you know, this work is really all about? Behind all the technical stuff, there is the core, there's the soul, there's motivation, there's vision, that there's all the things that make photography special. And you have made a good bit of your career, and especially with, with the uh, films that you have on YouTube, talking about uh, the spiritual side of photography. You quote Mae Sarton, Albert Camus, Carl Jung, Anais Nin, Mark Twain, and a dozen other uh, philosophers. And you say, again, you know, somewhere in, in your web presence, you say photography is more than a technical exercise. For me, it's also a spiritual practice. I couldn't agree more. I'm looking forward to unpacking that a little bit with you. But like so often, you know, I, I want to start at, at sort of the beginning. You say you mark the beginning of your career of when you were eight years old and you took a picture of a seagull. Tell me that story. T tell me about the very beginning of your self-understanding as a photographer. It was probably, uh, I would say, eight or nine years old. And at the time, I think my dad had left home about four years before that, when I was about four. And I think I was a pretty rootless, shy, retiring little boy. And I suppose within my family, I was also struggling to find my place within my family because my mom had remarried and this new man in my life who I was hoping would be a father wasn't actually keen to sort of get the package deal of a, a, a mom and two kids. So he sort of made it clear to us that he was going to be my sister's father when she came along, but he wasn't actually our father. So we were kind of sort of on the side or felt very much on the side of things and were, were shipped off to boarding school fairly early. And I suppose what that did for me was just made me constantly look for affirmation because I didn't feel at home in my own family and was looking for people to tell me I was okay and I wasn't broken or I wasn't doing things wrong. And uh, we'd gone down to the seaside one day. It was just my mom and uh, my little brother and myself. And we'd been walking around, oh, and my grandmother. And we'd be walking around the town and we got down to the harbor at some point. And there's a tradition in, in England where you, where you have uh, 
hot chips wrapped in newspaper is sort of the the quick go-to meal. So we went to one of these chippies, these local chippies, and we picked up, <laughs> you know, newspaper usually covered in salt and vinegar that sort of seeps through the paper. And we go sit by the the, the harbour front and watch the boats come in. But if you've been to the uh, the UK, you also know that seagulls are a particular menace. So when Absolutely. you're eating your food, you really have to be careful that one doesn't die, bomb you, and nick your meal out of your hand. <laughs> so we we were sitting there eating and watching, and and I I'd recently been given a point and shoot film camera, you know, with the little zip zip wind on back, plastic little thing. But I loved it because I think at the time as well, it gave me something to do that was sort of a creative distraction, but it also it sort of made me look busy to the adults so they wouldn't bother me as much because I was quite shy and retiring. And so a seagull landed perched on the on the railing in front of our bench, kind of eyeing us up. And I grabbed my little camera and I stood up and stalked him. And he let me get really close to him. I think because he was, I think he thought I was bringing him chips, but I was sort of stalking closer and closer. I managed to get really close to him and uh, snap a shot of him. And when my mom had that film developed, and we were sitting over the kitchen table probably you know, a week or two later. And we were sort of leafing through the prints. She pointed that one out with the seagull. And she said, that's actually a really good photograph. And she said, maybe you'll be a photographer one day. And that, for some reason at that point, you know, we had these little things people say to us that they might have said in passing, but that meant a great deal to us, even though they were throwaway for them. That little comment from my mom was like oxygen. It was like just all the affirmation I needed in the world. And I think somewhere that kind of love of photography attached itself to that feeling of being affirmed for doing a good thing. And I mean, it would be years before I became a professional photographer. I think it was, you know, I, I only got into professional photography in my mid twenties, but it just sat in the back of my head. Maybe you'll be a photographer one day. And that's where it came back around. I think. Well, you say that it was many years until you became a photographer. You took a, a course in your life that led you to the church, um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and you, be, you became a minister, a pastor, a priest. Um, talk to me about the, the genesis of that feeling in your life, because clearly these two threads are going to come together uh, when you get into your late 20s. And, and so how did that start? same place if i'm honest it was it was uh the the, lack the seagull of a, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i had a revelation from the seagull yeah. um, it was also looking for father figures and i was sent to when i was nine years old i was sent to a, a roman catholic boarding school uh, at the time my parents lived in lesotho in southern africa but i was sent back to the uk to this boarding school here because of the the sort of roman catholic nature of the school going to early morning masses and services was sort of a part of the whole thing and i don't think i really cared very much about the services I, I wasn't necessarily a very religious little kid or even understood really what they were talking about or what was going on but the priest who was kind of in charge of those services kind of took me under his wing because he obviously saw a kid who was you know struggling to work out who he was and he was very kind to me and he was very uh almost like an early mentor who was you know would, would talk to me about life or about different things and i and i really took that kindness and, and realized, you know, there, was, there might be something in this. I think that's what sort of early locked me in. And then the more I kind of dug for myself, I, I, I was also, I think, very interested in the otherworldly as a kid as well. I remember that same boarding school was actually in a, an old Victorian era manor that had been built, a manor house. So the old, the building was, um, I mean, 
we, we all talked about the fact that it must be haunted because it's so old and our dorms <laughs> were on the third floor upstairs with creaky floorboards and windows that kind of bashed against in the wind and and, and that kind of thing. And I think I, I was fascinated with ghosts and the afterlife and spirituality and I'd love that kind of aspect and I'd love to go sit down in the chapel because it just felt like a special place and it was quiet. And so I think there was always this side of me somewhere, even though it didn't really have a form or a or, or any kind of like understanding about that sort of stuff. I gravitated towards it as a personality as well. And then over the years going through high school and then leaving high school, I joined a, a, a music and drama group for a year as a gap year after school, which was Christian based that went round um, South Africa, Namibia and Zimbabwe for the year. We spend a week in a town and put on shows and bring people to the churches. And I think that was where it sort of all came together. I thought maybe I, maybe I could make this as a career because something about it I just latched onto. I, I love the idea of of exploring spirituality, but also the fact that there were there were really good practical aspects about the church that helped real people in in stress. So it it did do good things for people in poor communities and start soup kitchens or help floundering teenagers or kids like I was. And those sort of things really attracted me to it. And that's how I ended up working for them and eventually getting ordained. And I think all the way through my twenties, the last church I worked for. I just turned 30 when I left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and was photography just a pastime? Was it even not on the table during those days? It was. And it, it came about because the church doesn't pay very well. Will come as no surprise. So sometimes <laughs> it was a little difficult to make the rent. So I, I had to get part-time working on the side. And I'd always taken photographs myself because I enjoyed it. So it was actually video initially. So I started doing video work with old DV tape cameras doing things just you know recording interviews at corporates if they needed it or doing some event mm-hmm. videography that kind of thing which led to some photography and doing that sort of stuff on the side of the church work that I did and then when I left that last church and decided I was never going to go back and work for the church again it was th- at that point that I thought maybe I could make a go of this and see if I could make it my career and you talk eloquently in the videos about beginning a photography career is not easy. And and you didn't take the easy route. You didn't go into wedding photography and senior portraits and, and you know that kind of stuff. You went for something larger. You say, you know, photography is for you a spiritual practice. What do you mean? Well, it's a very generous reading for that. I, I appreciate that. But like the, the fact is I would have taken anything. I would have taken any photography work <laughs> at the start. I, I, uh, it wasn't an integrity thing at all. I was very happy to do any work I could get. It just wasn't there. And if I'm really honest, my work wasn't good enough yet to get good jobs coming in. So, I mean, the initial stuff I did, I did some food photography for uh, a friend's cafe and a catering business she started. I did some sort of, some very kind of rudimentary kind of natural light portrait stuff which people like the look of but i I secretly think that's because people are just impressed by shallow depth of field if they don't know how to get it themselves (laughs) so stuff like that i was doing those sort of things until i started to get some full-time gigs so i always kind of separated out the the photography that i did as a job and the photography i did for myself because i'm i'm realistic enough to know that if you want to make photography a career you can't sit on the side going, no, I'm a very spiritual photographer. I only do super spiritual sorts of photography that feeds my soul. You're not going to get any work. So you're not going to make mm-hmm. a success of it as a career. So I did take anything and everything I could get. And that took a while because I, I reckon for the first at least three, maybe even four years of trying to make photography work, my main source of income 
And this was at 30 years old. So from 30 to 34, I went back to waiting tables because right. that's how I could actually pay the bills. And the photography didn't pay for a while. And that was even doing the, the work I didn't want to do. That took a while to come in. But uh, again, yeah, I mean, photography for me, I'm always a little, I'm always a little reticent, honestly, because I, I think when you say something like photography is a spiritual exercise for you, it can just sound very woo-woo and it can sound like, oh, you know, you're just, it's a bit onanistic and it's about me feeling my way into photography, but it's, there's more to it than, you know, the latest specs on fancy cameras or, 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 right. or obsessing about how many megapixels this thing has or how sharp a lens is. It should be about things like storytelling if if that's the direction you're going not that every photograph has to tell a story because i don't believe that but but if you're if you're a portrait photographer for example it's not about having the the most shallow depth of field you can get for example it's about doing whatever needs to happen whether the photo is sharp or soft or or deep depth of field or shallow that you capture something of that person in that image that feels like you that you met on the day and maybe even more than that that push through all the armor that you could feel they had up as well to get through to who they really were. And that I think is a, maybe spiritual is the wrong word, but it's an anthropological exercise. It's a psychological exercise to try to break through those barriers. It's, it's trying to connect with another human being interpersonally more than how you wield a particular light proof box in your hand. You know, it's not about that. And I think when I talk about that, it's just to try and refocus other people and myself, because, you know, I need reminding of this, that, Photography is not a technical exercise first for me. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it is for somebody else. That's absolutely fine. If that's if you if you get your rocks off by obsessing about megapixels and that makes you happy and you're one of these guys who just loves a forum, good for you. Then that makes you happy, do your thing. But for me, it's it's about what I can use that tool for, and that's to tell better stories for me. And you do call photography storytelling quite often in the work that's out on the web. And, and I, I want to point out, by the way, I, I didn't say this earlier, for those of you that are listening, the website is seantucker.photography. I really encourage everybody to go there right now if you're listening, because you can look at these images as we're talking. Certainly everybody go there as quickly as you can, because it is remarkable work. Sean, you are not opposed to the technical side. I mean, it's not an either or situation. Clearly, you've got some work out there that does address the technical side of photography. Um, I think one of your videos, How to Do Portraits with One Speedlight, has mm. over a million views. But you've got the vast majority of your work going after the philosophic, going after the, the deeper meaning. There's a number of questions I've got for you here, but I want to go back to something you just said. When you're doing portraits, you talk about breaking through barriers. You talk about you know getting to something more essential about the person. Tell me a story. T tell me about either you know a single portrait or about portraiture in general and how you go about getting a headshot to reveal something about the spirit. I mean, there's there's a quote I've used in a video, and I can't for the life of me remember who said it. And and I, I've looked it up. I've Googled it everywhere. I just know I didn't come up with it because it's too good a quote. That's all I know. But it said something. It said something like, "Every portrait is a war between the sitter's vanity and the photographer's guile," which I like Ooh, because it's that. That is interesting. It's nice, isn't it? Because it sort of speaks to the fact that anyone who walks in and sits down in front of my camera is going to be quite deliberate in most cases about giving me the version of themselves 
that they want to project. They want their persona to be cranked up to 11, and that's all they want me to catch. They don't want me in Jungian terms. They don't want me to catch any of their shadow. They want the persona on full display. So I started my portrait photography like a lot of people do, just to build up the chops and work out the technical, like you say, because it's still important to know that stuff. It's, it's not necessarily the case that you need to just avoid it altogether. It's useful stuff to know. I went on websites like Model Mayhem and Purple Port and places like that where there are models and actors who are looking for headshots or photos to go in their portfolio so that they can go out and get work. And I found that especially models are incredibly good at giving you a very specific version of themselves. The number of times I would have models walk in to the room to shoot with them, I'd looked at photos that other people have taken of them before, and they just didn't look like the person who just walked into the room. I couldn't match up the person that I was thinking I was going to see because I'd seen photos of them and the person who actually walked in in real life. They looked like two mm -hmm. different people. But the minute I took that first photograph of them, that same person I'd seen in their portfolio appeared in, on the screen on the back of my camera as well because they were so good about holding their bodies a particular way, putting an expression on their face, the angle of their face. They knew exactly how to do it. So I found that to get through to those honest moments Models are the hardest to do that with because mm -hmm. they're so adept at keeping you away from who they really are. But I've had occasion to shoot people where they are not used to being in front of a camera at all and they don't know how to guard themselves. And those shoots, I find I can often get to something more beautiful. So two examples I could give you. There's, there's two projects which I've made films on. The one was going to Namibia. If, you, if, you, if people do go visit the website, it, there's a few photos from that Namibia trip on my portrait page. And I shot portraits with the Himba tribe in Namibia. And I mean, the experience of shooting with them couldn't have been more different. Whereas with a model, they're giving you the look how sexy I am pose and that look on their face that's very, very prepared. And it's, it's designed a particular way to elicit, you know, a specific response. When I went to this village and sort of spoke through my fixer to the village and said I was here to take photographs if people would like, and, and the approach I took was to set up my equipment on the side of the village and they could come to me to get a portrait, which I would then print and then send back to them. But I didn't want to get in people's faces and sort of force them to have their photograph taken or anything. It just made me very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the people who came over to me, the, the first photograph I took of a tribeswoman there, she stood there and I took her photograph and she just walked away straight away. One shot and she walked away. Because I said I was going to take a photograph and I did that, so I must be done. There's no, and, and I wasn't going to go, oh, no, hold on. Usually I take like, you know, maybe 15 or 20 and I'll shoot. And I thought, actually, no, let me not disrespect this. Let me not push my luck. I'm going to just take this as a challenge and just take one shot of everyone and see what I get. And everyone who came through, I took one shot and they moved on. They had their photograph and that's what I said I'd do, so let me not push. And my hit rate photographers talk about hit rates as yep, the amount yep. of images take versus the, your number of keepers was huge in that. I, I just didn't throw any images because I was looking for honest moments and they all gave it to me because they, there was no artifice. You know, There was no trying to give me some idea of, of beauty. They just stood there and stared me down and I found it so their vulnerability so attractive and, and beautiful for what it was. And that juxtaposes with these people who I often have to break through by talking to them or, or putting them off guard or catching an honest moment or a glance. And I often get those 
in more prepared shoots when I'm setting up lights, just because I'm saying I'm setting up lights, I'm taking test shots, don't worry. Those are often the keepers right up front because they haven't yet put their armor on. And I think those have been less. The other one was going back to South Africa and shooting with three mentors of mine who were just men through the years who, who were very influential in my development and taking portraits with them who are, you know, older men and also have no concept of photo shoots. And they just sat there and we had conversations the whole time. We just talked and catched, caught up while I was taking the photographs. And, and I got some really nice sort of honest, open moments with them as well. And I'd love to do more of that and less of the other. There's nothing wrong with the prepared and post stuff. I still do it. I still enjoy it. The images can be, are often much more striking with models and shoots where you're set up and stylus and all the rest of it. But there is something I, I want to dig into hard for myself personally in my own projects about the kind of very stripped down, simplistic lighting, no fancy wardrobes and just honest, open moments from people. I'm looking at the portraits page, the people page on your site right now, and some of the shots you've just referenced are, are clearly there. And it's funny to look at the, or not funny, it, it is instructive to look at the juxtaposition mm. of the Namibia shots versus the, the model shots yep. and, and, and to see them right next to each other. You know, one of the things that, that you're talking about, you know, you're talking about honest, more open and, and stuff like that. As much as I know exactly what you mean intuitively, how do you know when you look at a picture, you say this one's honest versus this one is more protected or guarded? You know, what is it about the image itself that conveys that vulnerability or honesty? It's very hard to define. I think it might be different for every photographer and it, I don't really know how to put it into words. I do know, you know, if I've pulled up all the images and capture one and I'm, I'm flicking through them after a shoot, there will be a few images that just grab me as open expressions or open moments. And if you said to me, what is it about the position of the eyes or the shape of the mouth or the turn of the head that makes it that, I, I definitely couldn't tell you. But I get an attached to that image of this is a moment. And I, I often have an interesting experience with people who come for photos with those images because sometimes I'll sit and, and look through that catalog with the client and I, I think I've said this in a video before, but those honest images, those open images will get an interesting response from the client as well. They'll jump out to me and I'll go, this image looks like you. Uh, something about it is a, is a really open moment from you and I, I'm not sure how to describe it. They'll also be drawn to it, but they'll, they'll be nervous of it. It will make them uncomfortable. And, and my challenge to people who have that response to images like that is to say, I know this makes you uncomfortable. For me, that's a good sign. Here's my challenge to you. I'm not telling you to select this image for me to edit up and give to you. I'd love to be able to use it. But what I'm challenging you to do is take this image to friends and family and partners who know you most and know you best and ask them what they see in this image. Don't lead them. Don't tell them what you think. Ask them what they see and then show them some of the other ones. And and so many times it's happened that they go, yeah, they, they said that one looks like the most me. Like it's the most, it's the, it's the most honest moment. And it's the one that they see me when I'm, I'm having a conversation with them in the kitchen. I have that slight upturn of the mouth and I don't know how or why that happens in the moment or why we're able to pick that up. But I, I do think there's something about how we read each other as human beings. And when we can pick up that there's a moment where someone's cracking open a little, we do it all the time when we, when we're doing stuff like, like when we're dating, we're sitting over a table from somebody and we can tell that moment when they drop into a different space with you 
and where they mm -hmm. open up a little bit. And I think there's a version of that in photography where you can feel someone just drop the guard for a second and open to you a little bit. And it's not as obvious because it's not conversational. They're not sharing their life with you suddenly, but there's, there's just an outbreak and there's a moment of calm and they just let you in a little bit. There's something like that. And it's, like I said, it's, it's super hard to define. And I think will be different for everyone. It is hard to define, but it's, as you said, also immediately recognizable. There's some kind of resonant space that that opens up. And you see this in other art forms too, don't you? You see it in jazz improvisation when suddenly, yeah. you know, a, a different sort of magic is going on. Hmm. Talk to me about street photography because you're in the entirely serendipitous. You're in, in the entirely unguarded and you've got an impressive repertoire there. Uh, what, what attracts you to street work? Street photography for me came around as a bit of an antidote to the day job because at the time I picked it up, I, my day job was full-time in-house for um, a series of companies doing product photography, which as anyone who's done that sort of photography will know, it's, it's often inc incredibly repetitive. You've got to get through 50 sofas in a day. They all need to be shot at the same six or seven angles with exactly the same lighting to all be cut out the same to go on a white background on a website. It's not creative work at all. And I just found myself falling out of love with my cameras a little bit. So I decided to rescue my love of photography by as part of my commute i basically got off the train and then i had a half hour walk from the station home and obviously the same in the morning from home to the station and i just decided that i would have my phone out i just shot on my phone for a good year and i left my camera in the bag because it, it had become about something else it was also big and bulky and would attract a lot of attention i thought let me set myself the challenge of on that walk every day from home to the station, I'll try and get one shot a day that I can just edit up quickly on my phone and post just as an exercise in reactive photography. So that's where it started. You know, I mean, I don't call myself a street photographer, honestly. I think I, I leave it broader than that because the street photography community can be, I, I've, I've been put in my place by them a few times being told what I do isn't street <laughs> photography. They're quite a protective, defensive bunch. And I think what I do doesn't necessarily fit that mold a lot of the time. They, a lot of them would define it as, I think, almost reportage where they're out there catching scenes between human beings in public. But the way that I shoot a lot of the time is to shoot spaces and interesting light and shadow in spaces and people moving through those spaces are often instant incidental. They're anonymous and they, they're small in the frame just to provide a sense of scale. So what I do is more in the vein of a Ray Metzger or a fan ho, I would say, and not to try and do any sort of reportage or anything like that, but far more, to just play with light and shadow and to to play with textures and colors. And it, it is just a purely creative exercise. And I'll do that when I go visit the countryside. It doesn't have to be in the street or when I go visit the coast or go for a walk in the forest. It really is just the daily photography that gives me a target in front of me that I can make sure I'm shooting as often as I possibly can to be learning as much as I can and not just waiting for portrait shoots. You know, th that's a wonderful transition because I want to go back to, to the philosophy and the spirituality a little bit here. One of the videos that I really enjoyed is the story of applying for the wrong visa uh, mm -hmm. to come do works, uh, to come do some work in the States. And the story, you know, if I can condense that part of it, you were going to come to the States, you were going to do some workshops, you applied for one kind of visa, turned out to be the wrong kind of visa to apply for. That's an anecdote. That, that That's a cute story you tell over a drink, but you, you, Turn that into a life lesson. You turn that into a metaphor for the the deeper aspects of photography, and you call it the Stoics. So, 
Tell me about that step from anecdote to metaphor. Tell me what's behind the notion of bringing up the Stoics for photographers. I mean, it's it's really been the philosophy of my of my YouTube channel since the beginning. Anyway, photography for me, even though I do care about it and enjoy it, and I'm very happy to teach it because I you know share what I know because people did that for me when I was starting out online. But it's almost a Trojan horse in that I think there's much more important things to be talking about and much more helpful things for people to hear. And this is where I'm probably still a pastor. It's just I'm, I'm not in a church. Is that my goal more than helping you work out how to use the settings on your camera, because I don't really care, is to help you live a better life. And that often comes down to tweaking your expectations about life and working out better ways to approach problems which is all philosophy is about it. You know, philosophy is this word that it can feel a bit ivory tower, but it, when you break it down, it just means lover of wisdom. Like someone who is always trying to, to hack life a little bit and work out how can I apply things that people have learned for, for thousands of years before me to my modern era now and the problems that I face. The answers are often the same. So I do read the, the, the Stoics and, and lots of psychologists and other philosophers and humanists or spirit, different spiritualities, because I've, I think there's answers in there. I've certainly found a lot that have worked for me and I want to pass those on. So I'm, when I'm sharing a story like that on my channel, I don't think anyone's really interested in hearing about my visa woes, but, the, but I think they will be interested when I tell them what my reading around the Stoics and Epictetus and Seneca through modern writers like William B. Irvin and, and Darren Browns has come out with a great book called Happy. I mean, great stuff like that that teaches you philosophies about how to deal with something when your visa goes wrong and you can't, you have to put to bed plans that you had. Well, what's in your control and what's not in your control is a huge tenant of the Stoic philosophy and learning what's in your control and what isn't and learning to stop stressing and choosing to not obsess about things that you never had control over in the first place and be more accepting. And it's, it's not that you have to go the, the Stoic philosophy route. I mean, Buddhism, like Zen Buddhism, different aspects of Christianity, some of Jesus' teachings, lots of different sorts of spiritualities, 12-step programs, lots of these places talk about exactly the same concept. It doesn't have to be that. It's just, here's something I've learned that helped me in this thing. And this will definitely apply to you as a photographer. And I think it's much more important than which f-stop to use. <laughs> because, yeah, it'll keep you more mentally healthy. It'll keep you more spiritually healthy. I absolutely agree. And it, it's unusual to draw a line from Stoic philosophers to composition in a photograph. But that line, once you start to look at it, you know, it, it's there and it's important. It, it, it creates the world within which you are then going to compose a photograph. Why did you, did you subtitle some of your videos, A Lesson for Light and Life? I, I've always had light and shadow as a little bit of a uh, kind of rubric for, for thinking about life. I did psychology as a degree years ago, and I latched onto Jung's idea of sort of archetypes and light and shadow, and specifically our persona and our inner shadow. And, and I think there's there's a thread to draw through everything. So I produced two videos in particular, one about the importance of protecting your highlights. In digital That's just where I was going in a second. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> protecting your highlights specifically in digital photography, because once they're gone, they're gone. But also if you look at any cinema that's produced and put up on a screen today, mm -hmm. they will protect their highlights. They let their shadows fall dark. And if they want light in there, they'll put some light in there, but they will, they'll, they'll start from that point of making sure that the clouds in the sky, you can see every detail and protecting your highlights became 
a photography mantra for me, but then I also turned it around and thought, what, what else could that mean? And thought, well, looking at Rick Hansen's psychology work, he talks about the, the kind of uh, the negativity bias human beings have and how we latch on to the negative in our lives and we don't hold on to the positives because historically speaking, we've needed to know that there's a lion hunting us through the grass and we have to know that right now and act on it right now. But celebrating a good thing that happened can wait till later. So our brains are primed to grab anything negative that happens to us, like Velcro, he says. But but positive thoughts slide off like Teflon. And we have to get deliberate about holding those positive thoughts in our mind for 10 seconds consciously to give it the same chance to imprint that a negative thought automatically has. So protect your highlights became a photography thing, but it also became a philosophical thing of when something good happens, I'm going to protect that highlight. I'm going to hold it in my head and let it imprint because it's important to have a balanced worldview, especially for, for somebody like me who, who could slide into depression if I let it happen. To be more deliberate about holding those things has been important. And, and on the other side, I did a video on embracing your shadows because if you're going to protect your highlights, you're going to have to get used to embracing your shadows. And like everybody, I think when I started out in photography, I had this obsession with being able to see all the detail in every shadow. I'm not sure why I had that. So the way that I would process stuff ended up sometimes looking like horrendous versions of HDR. Um, <laughs> and actually later on, I realized, my gosh, shadows are beautiful. Like having so much of the frame hidden in darkness gives questions to an image. It gives a bit of mystery. It gives, it gives some abstraction that might make it more interesting. Another thing that cinema leans into is shadows. And so that became another thing of, well, if I embrace my shadows in my photography, then what would that mean in life? Because my personality type can be very moralistic. I'm a, I'm a type one on the Enneagram. I'm, a, I'm an INFJ if you're a Myers-Briggs fan. Okay, okay. And it's, um, it's, it's that very kind of there's right and there's wrong in the world. I can get very moralistic about stuff if I allow it and very rigid about things. And I know that about myself. And, you know, I remember coming out of the church that there were years there where I got very moralistic about stuff. And having a greater openness and acceptance for life being messy and people having flaws and that being okay and embracing shadows and other people, but also myself and not giving myself such a hard time for it and being more accepting was, was a huge growth point for me. And also the shadows we walk through. So the bad things that will happen to us, what can I learn from them? What can I take from them? And the fact that spiritualities of all sorts all around the world will talk about the fact that we're only growing in the shadows. We don't grow when things are going well because we can just coast. We can be on autopilot. But when things are going badly, we have to adapt. We have to change. We have to strengthen. We have to f be forged in that fire. So what can I learn from the shadows? So that kind of protect your highlights, embrace your shadows. Those two things have become not just a photography lesson for me, but a life lesson. For everybody that's listening, at the website under the films tab, there is there's this whole section called philosophical, and I recommend every single one of them. I could not agree more. There is a way to become a more technically proficient photographer or artist of any sort. There is a way to become a deeper photographer, a better photographer. And your work, sir, really does open up an awful lot of that. Tell me a story of a particular image, your choice, either because things just went beautifully well or they all went to hell. Tell me a story of an image that you hold sort of close. Oh, that's interesting. Gosh, this is like paradox of choice, isn't it? There's an image on my website on the, on the street photography page, which 
is a black and white image of a girl leaning over a bridge with the Houses of Parliament in the background, and she's got a set of wings on her back, which just look like a, she's wearing sort of slightly eccentric clothes, but she's got these kind of wings on her back that she's obviously made or it's part of a costume or something. And we can't see Mm -hmm. her face. She's just sort of leaning over the bridge, looking down, and it's actually the Thames. It's an interesting image for me because it's one of the most reactive images I've ever taken. Because at the time, uh, this was two years ago in London in the summer when we had a lot of the Extinction Rebellion protests. And there were a few of us who were out and about sort of taking photographs of the protests. And we'd been photographing on um, Waterloo Bridge, for those who know London. And we just heard on Twitter there was a new protest kicking off just outside the Houses of Parliament in in this sort of grass square outside Westminster Abbey. And there were arrests taking place. And so three of us, photographers, the office shoot together, we started running from Waterloo Bridge to the Houses of Parliament there. And we, we ran down South Bank and then we were running over Westminster Bridge. And I snapped this shot of this person who, who might have been part of the process, she might not, but she was standing on her own looking over the bridge down into the water. And, and I literally just lifted my camera. I took one shot and kept running. And it was a really quick frame, really quick frame, just because she looked interesting. And I thought, I'll look at that later and then kept running. And then we got down to the other end and we started, we, we were there for a good hour taking photographs of the protest. And it was almost a throwaway shot. And I know nothing about her. The, the shot doesn't look like I remember the day because outside of the frame, there are crowds of people. It's a really busy area, but she's alone in the frame, huge amount of space behind her in these buildings in the distance. So she looks like she's on her own and there's no one around, but that wasn't the scene at all. But the the reason that shots become interesting recently is through lockdown. I've been uh, writing a book. So that's been the project of this, this lockdown. And I was really struggling to come up with a cover for this book couldn't come up with anything, trying text things. And uh, I'm working with a designer friend of mine who's sort of taken the lead on it. And he initially threw up this particular image. It's like, this would work well on the cover. And I said, nah, it's a, it's a silly image, man. It was literally just a throwaway image. I just snapped it and I ran on it. I, I don't really like it. Let's, let's keep moving and look for other things. We tried lots of other photographs. We tried just text-based covers. We tried everything. And he just kind of patiently waited. And then six weeks later, he came back to me and said, uh, hey, what about this image? And I said, yeah, I know you said to me, he said, no, I know, I know. He said, he said, just think about it. Just think about it. And the more I thought about it, he threw it in a design, sent me the cover and I suddenly saw it differently. It just taught me that sometimes we don't even understand what we've got as photographers. I can't claim that I, I get asked so often when I post an image on Instagram and I post every single day. So there's no ways I can post a brilliant image on Instagram. It really is just a visual scrapbook. And I get asked so often, what did you mean by that image? What are you trying to say with this image? What's the deeper message behind that? And I, I've just kind of let go of it all. I can't control everything I mean in every single click. Because I don't know. Sometimes I'm just intuitively responding to something in the moment and I'll work it out later. And sometimes I won't even realize it till a lot later. And sometimes I might never realize it. I just felt something in that moment. I did take the photograph because I felt it should be taken and I moved on. doesn't cost me anything on digital. I might as well click the shutter and think about it later. And it's just taught me that I I need to go back and look at everything. It, It was a good lesson. I might be viewing those images through the lens of what happened that day or or through the mood I was in that day or or some prejudice I have against my own photograph, which is such a weird thing to say, but it's definitely something that's true. And I haven't seen it for what it really is to somebody who views it cold for the first time. So that's been a, a recent image that's given me a good message. 
Oh, I, I love that story. Among writers, there's a famous quote by a guy named Frank Conroy. He says, sometimes the light bulb will appear above your head, but it may be years before it turns on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. I love that idea mm-hmm. because there's that immediate intuition that this is important, but I don't know why. So you raise the camera, you fire the shutter, you look at it later, and sometimes somebody else has to come in uh, and say, you realize what you did, right? That, that, that is a great story. You, you mentioned the book. Tell, tell us about this book that you're just finishing up that's going to be coming out soon. What are you doing? Yeah, it's a, it's a book I sketched out probably, oh, I'd say, 18 months or so ago, and it was kind of in the back of my mind. But I, I was approached by a publisher during lockdown, which has been perfect timing, obviously, being stuck at home and not being able to, to shoot. This has given me a project to, to work on when I'd have to be sitting indoors anyway. So it's, it's, it's been a great use of a bad situation. And yeah, it's a book on creativity in general. So the title will be The Meaning in the Making, The How and Why Behind Our Human Need to Create is the strap line. And it's for anyone who makes anything. It's not for photographers specifically. For those who know my YouTube channel, it, it will be sort of expanding hugely on the philosophical playlist I've got on that channel. And some of those ideas, but a lot of other ideas besides, and a lot of my own personal story in there and the things I've learned. And going through why we make things, why are we driven to make things as a species and what are we trying to do with it and how do we do it in a healthy way and how do we keep our heads in the right place and how do we pace ourselves and all those kind of things. So it is trying to be a book for creatives that that does dig in on the the philosophy and the psychology and a bit of the spirituality behind our, our need to make stuff. I am looking forward to it. Sir, this has been a lot of fun and illuminating. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.